1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am coming to you from Arizona, um, not too far away, um, as crow flies, is... um, David Sanger, who's in California right now. are you? Where are you in California,
2: David? Los Angeles. They make movies out here, I hear.
1: Uh, that must be why you're there.
2: It's um, not. I, you know. yeah. <laughs> uh, and um,
1: from Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University Law Center, we have Rosa Brooks. Hi, Rosa.
3: Hi, David. And David. And Corey.
1: And Corey. And there you hear that we also have Corey Shock <laughs> from <laughs> London, England. David, a couple of days ago, in the newspaper of record, um, the increasingly controversial New York Times, you, Eric Eric Schmidt, and Maggie Haberman had an article, um, which I thought was kind of interesting on multiple levels, not just sort of on its face value, but what it implies about how the U.S. government works, in which you, you wrote about how in the push for the 2020 election, security... A top official was warned, don't tell Trump. And I think this was a reference to the White House chief of staff telling um, them, don't bring this stuff up because the president doesn't like to hear about it. Um, and of course, that, I'm, you know, I'm not a cyber um, security professional like you are, but it seems to me that having the U.S. government not focus on a potential Russian attack might open the doorway to a potential Russian a- attack. Do I have
2: that correct? Right? <laughs> Yeah, it's subtle, but I think you caught the essence of it, as you can tell from Gloria's laughter. So here's the great paradox, David. The the Trump administration, if you look at the individual initiatives that are coming out of the Justice Department, which has been indicting bad actors in the 2016 attacks to sort of send a message, in the actions of the Department of Homeland Security, which is been much more active with uh, the states on the election interference, election machine stuff. And the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, which has been doing various things to go after some of the attackers, they have been much more active than the Obama administration ever was on these election interference issues. And it's not just me saying that, it's Democrats who worked with Obama on these issues who are saying that. The other side of the paradox is that they are doing this despite the fact that they keep getting told, you can do whatever you want, just don't wave it in front of the president or put it under his nose, because it will create the predictable reaction from him. And that reaction is, this is all a hoax. This is calling into question the legitimacy of my presidency, so forth and so on. So they're they're moving ahead. They don't have a whole lot of money, because, but well, that's Congress's fault. Congress hasn't passed a lot of the stuff that they said that they would. Um, but they can't discuss it in at the most senior levels. And the result is the president can't get out and sort of warn the general populace about the danger or take credit for what they're doing.
0: Okay, but the president wouldn't do that anyway. So that's not an actual loss. Right? He,
2: no, no. He wouldn't, it, um, a, a normal, you know, in, yeah, in normal times, what yeah, a president what, would do.
0: President yes. would do. Yeah. Right. Well, But, uh, but uh, how fortunate that the, under the national security advisor, John Bolton, there isn't an interagency process. So the White House doesn't have to be cognizant of what's going on in the agencies, David.
2: It's not only that they don't have a process. One of the first things he did when he came in a year ago was he dismissed the Homeland Security advisor, Tom Bossert, who actually knew a fair bit about cyber-related issues, had worked on them in the Bush administration, had worked on a lot out of government when uh, Obama was in. And then he eliminated the position of cybersecurity coordinator in the White House because clearly the government was over-coordinated. Um, so, um, so Rob Joyce, who had won the NSA's tailored access operations unit, the unit that breaks into foreign systems, it's exactly what you want playing defense, right? You want somebody who spent their entire life breaking into these systems. Um, and, uh, he actually eliminated that job. So there are other people on the NSC who have titles like senior director for cyber, but they certainly don't have his uh, kind of power to convene people or experience.
1: Well, wait, wait a minute. You know, Rosa, I'm I, I sort of giving, I get this image because I'm older of, um, of uh, Peter Falk playing Columbo. And David you remembering the TV enough. version? <laughs> I'm
3: not old David, enough. To do you remember watch
1: the that. TV
2: version or radio version? Radio, <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: actually, David, it's nice you bring that up. I actually remember the painting version. Of <laughs> um, but but you may recall where he's sort of scratching his head and he goes, "Um, well, I'm I'm not a specialist here in this national security stuff, but if you eliminate the person in the White House who's responsible for protecting against Russian interference and you eliminate the people who work for him who understand that and you eliminate the process by which their views are integrated into top-level policy and then you go and you eliminate the funding for those things in the Department of Homeland Security that might actually you make think that's us that's like a clue that might be a clue of something.
3: Well, it's true that in my policing training, they taught us all about clues. And you're right, David. That, 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 does seem that like it definitely might, sounds like one. It sounds like a clue. But once he, in our last podcast that David Sanger, unfortunately, was not part of, we, we went back to the perennial Donald Trump debate, which is corrupt or just dumb. Um, so once again, the trouble with this clue, like so many clues, is that it's, it's, it's somewhat ambiguous in terms of whether it supports the, the evil, corrupt, uh, treacherous uh, theory or whether it simply supports the, you know, jerk But as the great Rosa Brooks
0: pointed out in our last podcast, these are not exclusive. (laughs) They are not mutually
3: exclusive, indeed. And it's
0: extraordinarily difficult to figure out what is the discriminating data that would be one and not the other. We
3: do have a substantial amount of evidence that supports the just plain dumb theory. Um, And uh, we've heard from many, many different people, uh, including, for instance, those in the intelligence community, that the president's daily brief, which once upon a time consisted of a rather thick pod of detailed uh, papers, charts, memos, and so forth, has now uh, come to consist of, you know, a page of bullet points with a picture, um, because President Trump apparently does not read, is not able to read or process complex information, um, so, so of course, perhaps I don't know. I maybe, mean, maybe, maybe Kirsten Nielsen just correctly assumed that President Trump yeah, does not have the personality or the or the attention span to uh, focus on any information related to election security, uh, and it was better not to. I think, to I think I think it
2: come and I think it can be worse than that, Rose. I th- I think it's actually worse than that because. Um, <laughs> It would be one thing to brief him or not brief him. I think the bigger fear they have is that if he heard about it, he would get in the way of things that they are doing. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you think about the public statements you've heard on election security in the past few months, hasn't been bad except from the president. So in the worldwide threat assessment, which the president got so upset about what it said about North Korea, ISIS, uh, Iran, What's interesting about it is the first 10 pages are all about cyber threats and particularly election security, election influence 2020. Chris Ray the other day went to the Council on Foreign Relations and gave a public talk on this subject. Um, uh, the Justice Department has sent out um, Rob Rosenstein when uh, he was um, uh, deputy um, uh, while Mueller was still going on. He explained the Justice Department' strategy. Um, I've been through a few different briefings on the NSA Cyber Command strategy, which are usually you know less public as you could can imagine. What's missing here is anything that ties it all together, which is where it's got commonality with the China policy that you just described before. It's not that they don't have people doing good work. it's that they haven't de- defined what their strategic objectives are.
1: First of all, let me say the following. I hear background noise when, David, when you we talk, and it sounds a little bit to me like you're in the line at Disney World for, like, Tower of Terror. Is that correct? Are you at Disney World right now?
2: It's, it's, even, it's even worse, David. I'm at the Milken Conference, which is a little like Disney World for hedge funds.
1: Well, I did understand that both the Secretary Mnuchin and Secretary Ross – are attending the Milken conference, which creates a great opportunity for them to go to Mike Milken and actually get some advice on how to do hard time.
2: Well, uh, you know, um, Mnuchin <laughs> didn't show he wanted to try to go figure this thing out. Um, but you'll be glad to know that both Jared and Ivanka Trump are here.
1: Good. Well, hopefully they'll all be doing some hard time. Um, Corey, I, I, I almost never uh, on a hundred and... 85 or so episodes of Deep State Radio disagree with Rosa. But I think in this particular case, it's not, is he stupid or is he evil? I actually think it's pretty clear. He's evil. What he's doing, the president is actively trying to keep people from talking about the Russia issue. He thinks it renders him um, legitimate as a president, which it, it does to some extent. Um, and he, he would do, as David suggests, and he would meddle with these things. And when these policies come out in the open, he does meddle with these things. So it's not so much stupidity. It's that this is one area of, 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 of consistent policy um, from the president of the United States, which is he doesn't want to make it harder for the Russians to do what they did before.
0: Uh, yes. I absolutely think that's true. I also think it's true that the president is a congenital liar. and Yeah, by the way,
1: congratulations to the president for passing 10,000 lies, according to the Washington Post, um, which is a new uh, world record and something none of us thought we would see. Sorry to interrupt.
0: Agreed. It is an extraordinary standard. Um, And so... Yes, the president lies routinely uh, in order to protect his political fortunes. Uh, And whether he believes, whether he has enough uh, morality to understand that that is wrong or whether uh, at this stage in his life that has been numbed out of him because it has been his pattern for so very long. I can't say, but but he's unquestionably lying for his political advantage. He's unquestionably trying to desensitize all of us. Uh, I was struck. I finally read volume two of the Mueller report, uh, and I was struck uh, at how clear the case for obstruction of justice seemed to this taxpayer. Uh, and, and that the president had been conditioning us all along to say, but we knew that, uh, as though that somehow magically meant it didn't matter. Uh, so, so, yeah, I'm on – I agree with the evaluation that it's not just that he's dumb. He is also evil, which is why I am a serenely unrepentant signatory of all of the Republican letters saying the president was unfit and we shouldn't elect him. I feel like he proves this true every single day. Well,
1: He does prove it true every single day. Rosa, you know, one of the things you have taught me over the years is how flawed the U.S. Constitution is. And one of the things that's pretty flawed in the US Constitution is its provisions for dealing with presidents like this. And you know, maybe someday we'll do a podcast where we go through it line by line and figure out how to fix it uh, with you and a blackboard and a pen or something. But um, specifically in, in this case, it seems to me like the 25th Amendment is too hard to implement. And so there are a bunch of people in the United States government who are seeking to implement it simply by ignoring the president. Um, And that Mueller found this, and that the story that that, uh, David is talking about found this, and that rather than getting the majority of the cabinet to say the president's unfit, we're getting a majority of people or a lot of people at the next level down saying, well, I'm just not going to pay any attention to him. And that, you know, works, right, Um,
3: Rosa? Well... It's probably better than paying attention to him, but I'm not sure I would say that it works particularly well. I mean, I mean, it it has certain limits. Uh, one limit being that he is the president, and he does in fact have the legal power to override and stonewalling after a certain point. You know that that take take something like the issue of transgender troops in the U.S. military the Pentagon did its, you know, little bureaucratic best to to slow roll that one. But ultimately, the president's the president, and they're, they're going to have to do what he says at a certain point. Um, You know, you can only go so far by just saying, well, let's not mention this issue to him, or let's hope he forgets all about it. um, Or let's hope he doesn't read the fine print. Um, So that's, that's one limitation of the strategy. The other limitation, uh, obviously, is that, he has the ultimate bully pulpit, and his words, for good or ill, uh, have a profound impact on other Americans who, who aren't part of the government, who aren't any chain of command. But but you know, when Trump doubles down on refusal to condemn white nationalism, uh, that has consequences. Um, you know, when 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 he when he makes it clear that. Uh, he doesn't care about certain traditional norms when he makes it clear that he's not going to condemn racism or white nationalism or homophobia or you name it, uh, then all of the other people out there who share those views uh, are empowered. And sometimes they take that and they, they act on it in sometimes violent ways. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's having his underlings uh, attempt to thwart him is better than having them attempt to go full speed ahead on all of his uh, most crazy and evil ideas. But it, it does not does not make up for having an, an, a president who I think we can all agree is at least some significant percent, both idiotic and evil.
1: Well, maybe we can all agree on this. The real problem here is David Sanger. Because, now bear with me, because David Sanger... This shouldn't
2: be a hard case to make.
1: No, but bear with me. You know, David Sanger, along with, you know, um, other people at the New York Times, write articles in which they reveal that these people are not paying attention to the president. And presumably that has negative repercussions for these people and informs the president because he reads David Sanger very closely that it's not working the way it's supposed to do. So the question I have for you, David, besides offering the opportunity to apologize, is what, what reaction did the story get from inside the White House?
2: Um, not much, as these usually don't. The chief of staff came out with the really ferocious denial of saying, um, I don't have any memory of that conversation with Christian Nielsen. He didn't deny it happened. He just didn't have any memory of it. Um, nobody else uh, touched the subject matter. Um, which takes you to the interesting question, journalistic question that you raise, I've had more stories than I can recall in the past few months where somebody has said to me, um, you know, you're going to make the policymaking harder here if you write about this because you're going to draw the president's attention to the fact that we're doing X while he's saying Y or we're doing X while he is saying nothing. And then the problem will become managing him.
0: And May I, I answer on behalf of the First Amendment?
2: Well, well, my it answer to them— It is not your
0: responsibility. Yeah,
2: that's exactly right, Corey. That's what I say to them, which is, that's not my problem. Yeah. And, and I said, that's, you've just described your problem. You haven't described my problem.
0: <laughs> and, exactly. And, and, that is exactly right. That is not your responsibility.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there are moments where we will hold back on some detail in the story because it's— going to cost somebody's life or what we think or could uh, violate national security in some immediate way. But letting the president know what's happening within his own government does not fit within those rules.
1: Well, that's you know, something else here, Corey, and that is that um, the, the New York Times and Fox News, not in that order, perhaps. Um, have replaced intelligence briefings and the NSC. In other words, the president doesn't read what he gets from his staff. So the only thing he has to get and react to is what he, what he's being briefed by on mostly on you know, Fox News and sometimes when he, he happens to catch a headline in The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. And that's, you know, that's not how the system's supposed to work either.
0: Uh, Yes, and again, not American journalists' fault uh, that the president is woefully uninterested in these issues. You know, I remember back in the day when it was, I am old enough to recall, when it was a national scandal that President George W. Bush lacked curiosity about things. And what an innocent age that seems to be now.
3: You know, his
2: national security briefings I was just discussing with one of his uh, former aides the other day um, were biblical in length by comparison. But more importantly, one thing what happened in the in the Bush administration that isn't happening here. There were lots of deputies meetings and principals meetings and stuff was vetted before it went to the president. Excellent point. You know, here we've seen such a breakdown in process. That last week, the state—or two weeks ago—the State Department turned out a, a statement warning a warlord in uh, Libya not to go in and destroy the UN-approved uh, or backed government. And the president, the next day, tweeted out his support for said warlord. And people, at the State Department, were walking around just stunned. And it turned out there had been no process to all of this. Uh, and we saw that happen on the North Korea sanctions that got called off a few weeks ago. And uh, so um, they're just missing the element of policy development that then goes up to the president. And when you don't have that, you've got government by Twitter or a deep state radio episode.
0: Or you have the prime minister of Turkey persuading the president of something catastrophic for American interests.
1: Well that, that and that becomes part of the process, you know. Instead of the real process that we typically have um, of uh, working meetings, leading to deputies' meetings, leading to principals' meetings, leading to cabinet meetings, leading to recommendations to the president, leading to um, decisions by the president, leading to implementation by the agencies under the aegis of the NSC, et cetera, et cetera. We have here a scramble to be the one to get to the president's brain, and to get him to put out, you know, his own view, and then another scramble behind the scenes to try to do sub rosa beyond the 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 the, the um, reach of the president, whatever they can get away with. Uh, Professor
3: or- Brooks, can we have a ruling on sub rosa? I was going to complain that he shouldn't talk about me like that, but but. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I consider all of us to be sub rosa. How do you feel about
3: Excellent that? Excellent point, right, David.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but, but but Rosa, can you tell us is the is the reference to sub rosa either demeaning or politically non
3: correct? Well, David, that that's that's uh, I, I thought he was taking my name in vain, and I got a little I got a little upset. But as long as as and I always think of myself as, as a very dominant Rosa, not as a sub Rosa. Um, <laughs> I, think I think we'll like all, that. We'll I all testify that. to
2: that, yes. <laughs> Absolutely.
3: I mean that in an intellectual sense, um, solely, but in any case, no, um, uh, David, carry on.
1: Well, I was gonna get actually to a question, although I'm finding this line of discussion more amusing. <laughs> but, um, and that is that we, the absence of process has created some obvious problems thus far. With the kind of slow-moving sets of issues we've got, but we haven't faced one of those big fast-moving international crises that the system is essential to produce informed, fairly rapid decisions. And I you know everything that we're talking about here, particularly what David just said, suggests we don't have that process anymore. We have acting cabinet secretaries we don't have an nsc process we don't have a deputies process we don't have working level process we don't have interagency coordination this is you know terrible on a lot of levels currently but if, if something big happens out there in the bad old world we, we're going to be we're going to have our pants around our
0: ankles wow did i not want that visual
1: well, it was a sort of national metaphoric <laughs> Uncle Sam with his, anyway. Oh, go. No,
0: uh, no, 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 no. To no. your point, though, David, uh, the system was designed to produce good policy in peacetime and in crisis. And uh, we are getting bad peacetime policy. The stakes in crises tend to be so much higher because time is such an important factor in uh, thinking your way through problems. So, yes, I agree with your judgment that uh, in a crisis, what we are likely to see is uh, a very dangerous and destabilizing Trump administration where the president, where people are scrambling to take the president's phone and television um, channel changer away from him.
1: Now, how, do they, how are they going to feel at the Pentagon, Rosa, when Lou Dobbs is the one
3: giving them <laughs> orders? I think they're not going to be very happy, David.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's but, you know, David, it's,
2: since the Pentagon hasn't run a, a press briefing in, you know, basically a year at this point, um, watching Lou Dobbs is probably as good a sign toward military strategy as anything. I mean, the, the, the Pentagon actually has made the White House look like a picture of press briefing transparency. Well, because at least the
0: White House will lie to you from the podium. That and The Pentagon White House, won't even take the podium.
3: The White House yeah. did do a press briefing for the children of the press corps. I noticed that. And so from the mouths of babes, we are able to discern Trump administration strategy.
2: Uh, I'm not sure, given the press spokespeople they have right now, (laughs) that anything that I've ever heard come out in that press room would rise to the level of strategy. It might rise to the level of political response.
1: Well, you know, yes, I think that's right. But, I mean, you know, we are at a point where... None of these systems actually seem to be working as they're supposed to, David. When you're going into the White House, does any of it seem familiar? Or is this just, um, you know, sort of a wasteland of collapsed systems?
2: Uh, the furniture seems familiar. The room seemed familiar. I did a small briefing the other day in a room in the old EOB. I realized I hadn't been in since, I don't know, somewhere mid, mid-Obama. It all looked the same. The oil paintings on the, on the walls are the same. Um, but what's missing here, it's not that individually there aren't people who you can have a sensible conversation with. It's that you, you have a very hard time wrapping this into overall strategy there. Now, if you go over to the State Department and you sit down with Mike Pompeo, you might not like the strategy you hear, but at least he weaves it together into a cohesive tale. Now, whether you, we could have, you know, we've had many at a deep state radio session on the question of whether that is a an approach to the world that will work or blow up for us. But it is at least consistent. That is missing when you are dealing with it at the White House.
1: Um, it's an interesting thing. By the way, Corey, let me ask you a question here that seems slightly off the point here. What are you thinking? You invited... Donald Trump's state visit in the United
3: Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> Dear nope. so yeah, Corey, why'd you do that?
0: Because to quote um, Mr. Bennett from Jane Austen's fabulous novel, uh, <laughs> as a connoisseur of human folly, I I was eager to partake of these delicacies.
1: Wow. Well, that's can, you doubt
0: that, can you doubt that civil society here in the United Kingdom will not rise to the occasion? These are the people who gave you the baby in diapers balloon. They are going to be there for us, my friends.
2: So, well, David, maybe- I have a proposal to make, which is that Corey invites us all, all of the Deep State Radio panelists, to come over to her, her beautiful offices, which are right on the Thames, to pour <laughs> us wine as we and put us out near the windows and the balconies because it's really lovely digs, <laughs> and we can watch London burn while this goes on.
0: Okay, no, 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 onto. Yes, of course, you guys are always invited. Come and give a professional development talk for my outstanding analysts. Come as David did and talk about the important research you are doing and writing about. By all means, Deep State Radio uh, colleagues have a standing invitation. But London won't be burning. Recall that this is a country that turned out a few hundred thousand people to protest Brexit and there was no violence, no arrests. I mean, the big uh, climate uh, protests they are having now uh, consists of angry people insistent their government do something gluing themselves to each other.
1: Rosa, do you think this is really the first smart move of the Theresa May administration in which she said if we invite Trump over here like this everybody in the UK will say there but for the grace of God go I <laughs> um,
3: maybe so although I unfortunately I don't think it's likely that have that have, have that effect <laughs> I mean I think it's likely to just make people you know bang their their palms against their foreheads even harder like you know, things were bad enough, Theresa May, and now you went to this. <laughs>
0: now, before oh. you gave us this
3: epidemic, right, couldn't we just have measles back? Right. Well, you can. Good news. You can. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, by the way, this I, I'm sorry to sort of touch on a couple of other things from the news here, but while we have David, David, your friend and mine, um, the great Anna Fifield, um, has a book she is
0: out. great.
1: She is great. And you should definitely have her at S when her book comes out. And and But she's got a book coming out in North Korea. And one of the things that she reveals in her book, according to the Washington Post, for which she is the Beijing bureau chief at the moment, um, talks about how the United States actually signed an agreement to pay $2 million to the North Koreans for the health care that they gave Otto Warmbier. Warmbier, who, who, who arrived dead, by the way. I mean, you know, I just point this out. Um, and, and, and the president said, Well, we don't pay hostages. And then Bolton said, Well, actually, we signed the agreement, but we never intended to honor it. And I was just wondering, with all your experience with North Korea, do you think that might have some deleterious effect on other agreements? <laughs>
2: No, I actually don't, because it's also the way the North Koreans handle their signing of agreements. So I think everybody's sort of on the same page. So first of all, let's back up to Anna's book, which I have started to read. It is fabulous. It's the best stuff written on Kim Jong-un, period. So um, everybody should go out and get it. Um, The Deep State Radio Book Club should adopt it immediately as soon as they're all done reading
1: and um, we will definitely we will definitely have Anna on the show sometime yeah. soon as
2: well. No, So it's terrific. Um, and, and parts of it are hilariously funny, as you would expect, when you put together the larger-than-life characters of uh, Anna and Kim Jong-un. Um, so, second, um, the North Koreans are known for delivering large bills at odd moments. Um, when uh, Jim Clapper uh, went over to get the release of an American who was being held hostage uh, in 2014. He went out to dinner with the head of the Reconnaissance General Bureau in Pyongyang. That's the sort of North Korean CIA. They argued about who was responsible for the Korean War for a couple of hours while consuming a large, and, and Clapper tells me, extremely good Korean meal. And then at the end of it, uh, Clapper was presented with the bill, which is a little bit for challenging- For the meal? For the meal. Um, a little challenging because um, (laughs) they don't take American credit cards, and you can't use American credit cards in North Korea. (laughs) So they had to scratch together whatever dollars people had. They had to
3: leave behind their internal organs.
2: That's it, yes. Well done,
3: Rose.
2: So so, uh, this is not unusual. Uh, In this case, uh, Joseph Yun, who was the North Korea coordinator at the time and was over there, uh, told CNN um, that uh, he called back to um, Rex Tillerson. Remember Rex Tillerson? He was one Secretary of State. Uh, to to ask those, for those, were the,
1: those were the good old days.
2: Yes, that's it. To ask for guidance on whether or not to sign this, and that he believed Tillerson went to the White House and to Trump, but he didn't know it at the time, and was told to sign it. So I think their strategy was that they were going to treat this the way Donald Trump treated a bill from one of his contractors when he was <laughs> you know, building <laughs> hotels in New York, which was you sign the contract and then you argue about whether you're going to pay anything or just part of it. Um, everything I've been told uh, indicates they paid nothing uh, for it. But had they not signed it, they wouldn't have gotten warm Beer out of there. So I'm not sure they made the wrong choice because at that moment, he was in a coma. They desperately needed to get him to medical help in hopes that it might revive him. Obviously, tragically, it did not. Um, but uh, I think they would have signed anything under those circumstances.
0: That's really it is, interesting.
2: It is pretty rich, though, given how much Donald Trump talked about um, the degree to which uh, the Trump administration, the Obama administration, um, paid for hostage releases and all that. Uh, Here they're just saying it was medical treatment, it wasn't hostage release.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure it would would take us all more time than we have in our lives to try to explain the concept of fungibility to Donald Trump. Um, But uh, nonetheless, uh, I just wanted to get to that that last bit of a story um, before we wrapped up for this week. Um, I hope everybody notices we didn't dwell on the Mueller report or the presidential campaign. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll try not to do that. Um, uh, we're going to focus on national security, foreign policy, and how politics impl- implement, implicate those or, or impact those things um, as we go Although, forward. David,
2: I do have to tell you that if you go around the hallways of the Milken conference here, it is to trip over Many of the 20 Demo- or 22 Democratic candidates.
1: Well, who have you seen?
3: And we'll why see- are you tripping them?
2: Yep, that, they, they're, It's so crowded, they're tripping themselves. Uh, Seth Moulton is here. Um, oh,
1: Seth let- Moulton. President Moulton's administration is going to be one for all of us to deal with. Yeah, go on. Sorry.
2: <laughs> I don't think you want the list. Several are here. Uh, <laughs> They 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 may not be the ones who make all the CNN debates. (laughs) Uh,
1: um, Well, the uh, um, uh, the reality one person who's not there as we're recording this is Joe Biden, who launched his campaign today, Um, and uh, um, who uh, uh, is uh, uh, starting off by putting his foot in his mouth on a couple of issues, which. I suppose you might as well start off on the foot that you're going to remain on for the campaign. Uh, but anyway, we'll... Uh,
0: <laughs> but at least the day before he announced he apologized to Anita Hill. That wasn't politically motivated. No.
3: He didn't, he didn't actually completely apologize. Mistakes no. have been made.
1: No, he's he's had a hard time with that, and uh, and he's going to have a hard time with a lot of other things as he goes forward. I think... Uh, Corey summed it up pretty well last week. And I think what we're going to see here is, uh, every couple of days a gaffe, but, you know, we can talk about it on deep state radio. We also have this new unredacted podcast with Felipe, uh, uh, Philippe Reines and, um, Molly Jong fast and, and Emily Brandwin and guests from these campaigns. And we're going to try to have that one focus more on the domestic political side of things. Um, and so, you know, tune into that, tune into this. Go to DSRnetwork.com, become a member, help support this kind of coverage and enlightenment and, uh, you know, enable us to, uh, um, uh, you know, tune in to David as he's hobnobbing with billionaires um, out in in California. Uh, or uh, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> as she's Warming
0: California. up for hobnobbing with billionaires in Aspen, right, David?
1: Yeah, that's what he does. That's, that's who he is. And uh, of course, Corey. I I
0: hobnob with fish in Aspen,
2: uh, Corey. You know that.
1: Yeah. No, it's true. And I, (laughs) we're going to have a lot of pictures of you and waiters that, uh, up on the website, to sort of David, David's fishing, uh, which I think will be uh, very popular. Um, But uh, in any event, uh, you know, join up, become a member. We'll give you extra features like that. And uh, tune in again next week to Deep State Radio. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.